Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Happy Easter to everyone. It's it's different this year, isn't it? Because I think over this past year, maybe more than any year, we've learned how precious, for example, our family time is, how precious our congregational time is, even the the ability to be together like we are right now. I think God has given us cherished things, and I think for the first time in a long time, we really cherish them. And I think after the year we've been through, that is more clear now than ever. So here we go. We'll see if you forgive me. Daryl, Pastor, Pastor Daryl in Nuanlock, he told me after the Good Friday service, he said, uh, he was listening to me, I was talking about Daniel, I was talking about Esther, and he said to me, did Chad get the memo that it's Good Friday? And so, and so I, I thought today I'm going to also uh, lead the way and tell you, yes, I realize it is Easter, so um, it's all going to work out. We're going to spend our time in Acts 4 this morning, and like I say, before you start throwing chocolate eggs at me and asking for an Easter sermon, it's going to be all right. And I want to remind you, uh, last time I was speaking, we looked at the end of Acts chapter 2, and we learned about some of those characteristics of the early church. Luke told us, one of the things he told us about the early church is that there was awe on every soul because of the wonders and the signs they were experiencing. Last week, Mark introduced us to the first one of those wonders. There are some 14 miracles recorded in Acts and the healing of the beggar at the gate of the temple. Say that five times fast. (laughs) That is miracle number one in the book. But this miracle, the first miracle performed by the apostles since Jesus ascended, it comes with some serious consequences. I mean, one of the things we learn by reading the text is that this beggar must have been very well known by the people. He was unable to walk since birth. And when the locals see him literally leaping in the temple plaza, praising God at the top of his lungs, it causes this incredible stir all around the city. And I just love that thought. Can you even imagine that man's joy? He has never walked a day in his life, and now he is leaping. And I have to wonder, that picture of a body restored, that picture of joy in the presence of God, is this even just a glimpse of what resurrection day will be like? When all of this happens, Luke records that the crowds literally ran toward them. And when Peter saw another crowd gathering around him, guess what he thought he ought to do? He saw the perfect opportunity to preach his second great sermon in the book of Acts. It's a beautiful sermon. It's in the second half of Acts chapter 3, and I encourage you to take a look at it. I especially love it because Peter in the Holy Spirit, he so knows his audience when he preaches this sermon, and he's preaching straight out of the Torah. The Torah is so much the center and the heart of Israel, and it's the bedrock of the entire Bible, and that's what I was able to study when I lived in Israel, and so I'm, I'm just absolutely in love with it, and I love this sermon, so 
So please take a look at it sometime. Second half of Acts chapter 3. I think maybe I love the Torah so much because it so perfectly outlines the need for a savior. And so because the Torah is the bedrock of all scripture and it's so much about the need for a savior, I think Jesus is then built into every bit of the Bible. But after Peter preaches his sermon, we get into today's text. It starts in Acts 4, verse number 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Doesn't this sound familiar? A miracle has happened around the temple. It creates a scene. And of course, the priests and the Sadducees show up. After working through Matthew, we're really familiar with this happening. We are quite familiar with these guys. There's another person with them that I don't know that we've mentioned before called the captain of the temple. And so I looked into this a little bit, and it's interesting. In essence, the captain of the temple was in charge of the temple police. Now, police didn't exist in the ancient world the way that we think of it, but he he was maybe as close as it gets. And his job was to watch out for and then to put down any potential riots which would happen on the Temple Mount. And he had armed men under his command. So it's actually a pretty interesting job. The captains of the temple, they were drawn from the most powerful Levitical families. And they were actually considered the second most powerful men in the temple behind the high priest. But maybe my favorite part of these two verses is this. The priests are annoyed. I love that choice of word. Why do the Sadducees show up again? They're annoyed. And this is a total understatement. Think about this. The Sadducees went to great lengths to try to stamp out the news of Jesus' resurrection by bribing the guards. We saw that at the end of Matthew. And more than that, the more of what makes this whole sermon annoying is that the Sadducees, the spiritual leaders of Israel, they don't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees actually believed that the souls die with, body, with our bodies. And can you just think of that? Can you think about the spiritual leaders of your religion actually believing that your souls die when you die? It almost sounds like atheism to us. And that's why the Sadducees had so many rivalries with the other religious groups in Judaism. The Sadducees also loved to suck up to Rome and to get uh, political favor. They loved to be put in charge and they loved that the Romans would protect their position. And so here are John and Peter. They're on the Temple Mount. They're preaching. They've attracted a raucous crowd at the temple. And first things first, the Sadducees, Roman overlords, they do not want to see uh, these raucous crowds at the temple. And John and Peter are preaching resurrection, which the Sadducees don't even believe in. And then they're saying Jesus is alive after the Sadducees and the Pharisees have plotted for years to kill him. So the Sadducees are a little bit annoyed. (laughs) 
And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So we see, in fact, they're so annoyed that they arrest Peter and John, and they decide, hey, it's so late in the day, we'll just deal with this tomorrow. But I actually, I love that little detail that they had to hold them overnight because it was evening. Because Luke actually told us that Peter healed the beggar at 3 p.m. He gave us the time of day. So what this tells us is that Peter and John have been preaching and celebrating and causing a scene for hours. They have been there till nightfall. And it gets a little better. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So it's not clear whether this means that the total number of Christians had come to 5,000 and they got 2,000 new recruits that day, or if they actually had 5,000 people accept Jesus there at the Temple Mount. But either way, the point is that thousands of people are coming to faith because of what they have seen and heard. It's amazing to compare it, because we know Jesus had a crowd of followers that was in the hundreds. And of the ones that actually stuck by him, it was about 120. The Sadducees then killed him. The Sadducees, they thought they settled it. And now in a few weeks, there are thousands of followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, and it's growing every day. This is becoming a struggle for the very heart of Israel. Verse 5. And on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. It's actually a very interesting passage. I probably spent too much time reading about it. We know this group when when Luke tells us who was there. Whenever the Bible says rulers, elders, scribes, or any arrangement of those, that's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish court, the the ones who take care of all domestic affairs in all Israel. And this includes the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were sitting in on this as well, and they're all gathered together. But for this meeting of the Sanhedrin, it's a little bit like our parliament works. You know how, oh, don't we love this? Our MPs will only show up for some votes. And if a vote is very uh, important for a particular party in parliament, then all of their MPs will show up and the others won't bother to show up. This is, this is a well-established you know, picture of our democracy. Um, it's a little bit like that. So we don't know how many of the others are there, but, but Luke makes sure to tell us that the political party of the Sadducees, they send their top brass. We know Caiaphas really well already. He is the high priest of Israel. He's the one who personally paid Judas. He interrogated Jesus. He turned Jesus over to Pilate to be killed. He's also the one, I love to make this joke, I met him. Um, In the 90s, archaeologists found his bone box. They found the little ossuary which holds his remains, Caiaphas the high priest. So when I was in the Israel Museum, I got to stand a couple feet away from what's left of Caiaphas. And it's always a powerful image for me because there's the high priest of all all Israel. He's a box of bones and our Lord is alive. Our Lord triumphed. But there's another top Sadducee in this crowd. Did you notice that in, in this passage, Caiaphas is not called the high priest? 
Anas is called the high priest. It's a little bit confusing. Anas was actually the high priest before Caiaphas took over. And more than that, Anas was Caiaphas's father-in-law. So there is one family who rules the temple of Israel. So it's kind of like how former U.S. presidents, they're always called president. Have you ever noticed that? So when, when the father-in-law is there, when, when Anas, the former high priest, is there, he's the high priest because he was the one first. Anas didn't come up in Matthew, so we haven't met him before in our series, but he does come up in John's gospel. Listen to this. I'll read to you from, this is from John chapter 18. John wrote, so the band of soldiers and their captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And then a few verses later, John continues, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And, and John is actually writing about Anas. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple and where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So what John teaches us is that Anas is just as complicit in Jesus' interrogation and execution as his son-in-law Caiaphas is. So these are wicked men who are gathering here. And I just want you to realize how much trouble Peter and John are in. These are the most powerful men that, aren't, that don't have Roman last names in the whole country. And they brought out their top brass, they even brought out dad out of retirement in order to crush these guys. That's the situation that Peter and John are brought into. Luke also mentions uh, John and Alexander. He, th- he mentions them like we should know them, but I don't know if he imagined us reading this 2,000 years removed. So interestingly, the guy who became high priest after Caiaphas was named John, but we don't know if it's the same guy because in Israel, John's kind of came a dime a dozen and Alexander could be anybody. We don't, we don't know who that is. But think about this for a moment. Think about that danger that they're in and then look at what happens. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, he actually describes what these Sanhedrin trials look like. And what the Sanhedrin would do is the whole lot of them, I think there were 72, there were supposed to be 72, they would form a gigantic semicircle around the accused. And you'd be getting questions from all all sides. It's like the most horrible thing imaginable. But Peter and John, they're brought into that semicircle. And you notice the Sanhedrin, they, they question these two men exactly the same way they questioned Jesus. By what power, in whose name? It's like saying, by what authority do you do this? 
I, think, I find this so amazing. Because they don't dispute that the beggar was healed. They can't dispute it. They would have been, walk, they would have been walking by the man on the temple steps for years. The priest would have passed that way every day. They can't deny that the man was healed. Their point where they dispute is whether or not Peter and John had the authority to heal him. And so it gets pretty good. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. We've seen this already when we talked about Pentecost. Peter on his own, when he opens his mouth, he's pretty iffy. If he is gracious, but Holy Spirit version of Peter is absolutely amazing. And we're about to see a promised fulfilled. Jesus said this to his disciples. This is from Luke 21. Jesus told his disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth, I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So do you catch that? Jesus promises his disciples they're going to be arrested. They're going to be brought in front of the kings and the governors and all the big shots. Because this is going to be their best opportunity to witness. And Jesus' instructions for the disciples then are, don't prepare anything. Don't worry about having the right words. If what came next was Peter's own speech, it wouldn't go so well. Jesus is going to give them such wisdom that their enemies will not be able to withstand or contradict it. And this is, I think it's a passage always worth remembering. In our Situation. We're not in that situation, but if Jesus should call us to be arrested for our faith and brought before authorities, the assurance here is, don't worry about what to say. Don't even prepare anything. Just rely on him. And I think that's as true today as it was for Peter. So the Holy Spirit is on Peter. Jesus is already keeping his promise. <clears throat> and I find this very interesting Peter addresses the Sanhedrin with these titles of great respect, right? He says, rulers of the people and elders. This is very formal speech, especially for a fisherman. I love this. Because if you remember to Peter's letters in the New Testament, especially 1 Peter, first Peter wrote, this is sometime after this, he wrote us some instruction which I bring up all the time. I'm going to bring it up again. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always, always witness to the truth of Jesus with gentleness and with respect. And we see right here, even in this intense circumstance, Peter lives by this. He addresses the Sanhedrin, Jesus' killers, with gentleness and respect. And here's what the Spirit has to say. We'll see if my voice holds out after Friday. I'm losing it already. Verse 9. 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. If you, elders and rulers, if you really want to know how this crippled man was healed, it was by the name of Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. And Peter gets straight to the point. Maybe you notice this, that Peter is actually, he's making exactly the same argument he made at Pentecost, right? He's saying to them, just like he said to the crowd, you killed Jesus, God raised him, you're in trouble. And I think in this whole, this whole address, right, the Spirit is asking, who ought to be on trial here? Peter uses the word good deed. What crime is it to, to do a good deed and heal a crippled man? How in the world is that a crime? Especially compared to the murder of the Son of God. And then there's that last little detail. Peter says, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well, which means that the healed beggar, he was actually standing there in the court. And so we don't know if he was arrested with Peter and John, that's possible, or if he was brought as a witness. But to add to the whole drama of the scene, he is standing right there. And the spirit isn't done. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Here, Peter quotes Psalm 118. It's Psalm 118.22. But we've actually seen this passage before, and this is interesting. Because the last time we saw this in Matthew, Jesus was saying it to the same men. That's from Matthew 21. And so what I see is that now Jesus speaking through Peter, through the Spirit, is not letting the priests forget what he told them. The point of this verse is that the man that they, the spiritual leaders of Israel, rejected, that he has been vindicated. Jesus was raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of God. He has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the great stone in the temple which held the walls up. Jesus, has become, who is rejected, has become the peace which holds everything together. And the question again is, where does that leave you, Sadducees? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This whole situation is about so much more than one man's body being healed. This is about salvation from death and sin. This is about eternal life and deliverance from the coming judgment. This is about the mercy of the King of Heaven. And the message is that if the Sanhedrin, the most powerful and religious men in all Israel, do not repent, they will not be saved. They have nowhere else to turn. There is no other name that they can call out to for help but Jesus. 
These men, the Sadducees, they believe that they are nearer to God than anyone else, but by rejecting Jesus, they prove that they are further from God than they could ever imagine. And what strikes me about this is after all of this, Jesus is still so merciful. After the interrogation and the beating, the crucifixion and the mocking, he is still here in Peter, reaching out to them in grace. Jesus knows the Sanhedrin needs him. Jesus wants Annas, Caiaphas, and all the elders to repent and be saved. And so he is confronting them directly with their sin. How do you think the Sadducees respond? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They are astonished. They cannot believe the boldness of Peter and John. And what shocks them most of all is that Peter and John are very obviously extremely ordinary guys. They are two fishermen with backwoods accents. Their accent gets made fun of all the time. And here they are, they are winning a theological debate with the most educated men in all Israel. God loves to use the foolish to shame the wise. There's nothing wrong with being a fool. God loves to do all sorts of things with that. So this is profound. Seeing this, seeing that these two ordinary men are saying everything that they're saying, the Sanhedrin can only come to one conclusion. These men had been with Jesus. Because the elders had been through this before. They're probably having flashbacks. They sparred with Jesus countless times. The Sadducees and the Pharisees would actually get together and they would try to trap Jesus with the most confusing, with the most dangerous arguments they could come up with, but they could never match him. And time and time again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were publicly embarrassed because they were kept losing debates with one ordinary man. One man from a poor hill town who had never studied under any famous rabbi. So even the Sanhedrin can see that whatever wisdom was in Jesus is now in Peter and John. And they know there's nothing they can do about it. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. How can you deny it? The man is standing right there. Jesus used miracles of a sign of the authority of his teaching. Jesus used miracles to prove that he was teaching with authority. Now Peter and John have done exactly the same thing And this whole Sanhedrin is sitting there and they are unable to deny their authority because they have healed a crippled man. The priests are facing a nightmare. They thought they defeated Jesus, but now his disciples are just like him. What happens next kind of speaks for itself. I'm going to read starting at verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sign of God to listen to you or rather, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God because of what had happened. They can't deny it. And once again, they're afraid of the crowds. So the Sanhedrin pathetically warns the disciples to stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and John literally tell them, no, we're going to listen to God, not to you. And there's one very interesting last note here, verse 22. For the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Can you imagine that? Over 40? I'm 34, so this is still amazing to me. He was over 40, and yet he was still healed. This probably tells us a couple of things. One thing is, I think life expectancy in the ancient world was about 32. So 40 was actually a pretty good accomplishment. But more than that, this man was 40 years old. He had been crippled since birth. This means that the people of Jerusalem, the priests, everyone, had seen this man begging for decades. There is no way to deny this miracle. I think this is just such a great story. I love that picture of the underdog, right? Of these ordinary men before the most powerful men in the nation and how the Holy Spirit uses these ordinary men to totally confound their accusers. The disciples glorify Jesus in the presence of the judges and then they get away with it. But there's a tragedy in this story too. The elders, they all know that the beggar's healing is undeniable and it isn't enough to shake them awake to the truth that they are not on God's side. They can't even consider it. For all of these sharp warnings, they fall totally on deaf ears because obviously there's something more important to the priests of Jerusalem than honoring the God of Israel. And that's to protect their own power. Ultimately, it wasn't the healing which caused all of this uproar. It was resurrection. Nothing undermined the power of these wicked men more than the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter said it plainly as anyone could. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. There is no other religion. There is no other God. There is no other revelation of God but Jesus. There is no way to escape death than by following the man who defeated death and proved it. The sad thing is, when the world hears this message, they go to great lengths to try to convince us as Christians that it's cruel, that it's exclusive, or that it doesn't respect diversity. But there's no imposition here. That is a total misunderstanding of the message. Peter is not trying to force the Sanhedrin into anything. 
There's no religious ritual that Peter's trying to make them perform. There's no power structure. There's nothing but a man, one man, who makes all of the difference. And this one man makes the same offer to all people of every creed and every culture, and the message is always the same, and it is always perfectly simple. Follow me and live. And that's it. God will allow you to say yes or no. And God will then permit you to live out your decision. All of it hinges on the name of Jesus. No matter who you are, where you live, what you believe, you are confronted by the same truth which we the church have been echoing for 2,000 years and that is the resurrection. Jesus either lived or he died. And it is something that all of us as men and women on earth must face. If Jesus used miracles to prove his authority, and if he was raised from the dead, then we must follow him. And we would be crazy to do anything but follow him. But if you can't believe that God has worked this miracle in Jesus, you are free to make your own way. And we as Christians, we have a part to play in this whole drama. Because Jesus does not ask people to decide for or against the resurrection without evidence. He has provided evidence, and that evidence is you. The evidence of the resurrection is you, and it is exactly you. Because it doesn't matter where you studied or what your credentials are. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or whether or not you're well-spoken and you can make speeches. All that matters is what the Sadducees recognized, that the disciples had been with Jesus. Peter spoke, and the Sadducees saw Jesus. He is alive. He is alive in you. He is alive with you. He is keeping his promises, and he is restoring you. He is changing you from the inside out. So that whenever people, the more and more you walk in faith, they will see him. And you will be his evidence. And so there is the invitation this Easter, this Resurrection Sunday. We can talk about resurrection until we're blue in the face, but what will really capture hearts is when people look at you and they see Jesus. So Eddie, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to make you say anything, don't worry. But please take this to heart, because I love that you want to set the right example for your boys. I love that. The only way you're going to set a good example for your boys is if you spend time with Jesus. And that's it. Because Peter and John were ordinary guys, they were working men, and that's what made the priests so crazy in this situation. Because you don't have to love public speaking, and you don't have to have a lot of influence to represent Jesus to the people around you. All you have to do is spend time with him. And the more you do that, the more your boys, the more your wife, the more your family will see Jesus. If you think back to the end of Matthew, and you think of those women going to the tomb, when the women met the angel at the empty tomb, the scriptures tell us that they were full of two things. They were full simultaneously of fear and great joy, which is like a literal tornado in the center of your heart. You were terrified and you couldn't be happier about it. 
But do you remember the first thing Jesus said when he met them right after that? What did he say? Peace be with you, do not be afraid. And so if they are consumed with fear and joy because God has broken the rules and Jesus is not in the tomb and Jesus says, do not be afraid, what are they left with? They are left with joy. Jesus told the disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. When they see your joy, they will know that Jesus is alive. And we can be honest about it, and I've alluded to it. It's been an awful year. Has the news cycle, has our small talk, even on the street or in the gas station, has it ever been more joyless? You know, what a relief is it these days whenever somebody has good news, right? And I know how you feel. I am so tired. (laughs) I am so tired. And you are frustrated, or you are angry, or you are scared, or you are some crazy mix of all of those things, and I'm right there with you. But the news is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and that means you're free. Jesus is alive, and that means despite everything, you can have joy, and it doesn't matter how you're doing, because he will give it to you. Jesus is alive, and that means despite all the bad news in the world, you are released from the grasp of death, because Jesus will not allow death to have the last word in your life either. Jesus is alive, and he is a righteous king, and because you have trusted in him, he promises you will be spared the coming judgment. Jesus is alive, and so men like Eddie can be cleansed like a leper on Easter morning and come up soaked and perfectly forgiven. Jesus is alive, and God has kept all of his promises all through the witness of Scripture from Moses and the prophets and onward. Jesus is alive, and there is a physician who knows your pain, who knows every corner of your heart and can heal your wounds. Jesus is alive, and so we as a church... When our loved ones pass, we bury them and we trust in his goodness and his resurrection and we have comfort. Jesus is alive, so we are not helpless to the ploys of the enemy and his lies and the way he tries to infiltrate, to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus is alive, and so the Holy Spirit gives us new life. Jesus is alive, and so we live. And so like that man leaping through the temple who had never even walked before, we have incredible joy. When we encounter Jesus, when we spend time with him, he gives us his joy. And like those two brave disciples before the courts, we will not be able but speak of what we have seen and heard because of the joy the Lord has put in our hearts. And that is how this world will be saved. It's going to be saved by a joyful you and me. Because our joy, despite everything, is the perfect evidence that he is alive. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good, and we know that that joy doesn't come from ourselves. We have struggles. And we have needs, and without you we are nothing. And so we pray, God, that your spirit would fill us. 
and that it would tend to those wounded parts of our lives, those wounded parts in our relationships, and you would form us into a joyful people. And we pray, Lord, that as we spend time with you and as we are filled with your joy, people will see in us, yes, he, yes, she has spent time with Jesus. God, we pray for the lost. We pray for those who, like the Sadducees, just seem to have their ears stopped. We pray for those who can't even seem to understand what is right in front of them. And we pray that the lies of the enemy and the lies of this world, that they would be frustrated and they would be torn down, that your banner would be raised high. We pray that none would be left to despair. We pray that none would be left without the helper which every human being fundamentally needs. There is no salvation but the name of Jesus. And so we pray, God, through all the hardship in our lives or in our culture, in our society, our nation, that you would be glorified through it, that you would create a church which can meet the needs which we face today, and that in our joy, people would meet Jesus and there would be a great harvest. And I pray for across Canada, Lord, that, that like we are talking about in Jerusalem, we would be talking about the thousands coming to the Lord. We pray that we wouldn't drag on with people losing their faith and churches in decline, but that the power of the resurrection would overcome all things. And first and foremost, people would know, Jesus, you are alive. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for salvation in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.